everybody and welcome to the spoiler warning podcast this is review number 742 with a review of oppenheimer i'm christopher schnazy and i am become death the destroyer of worlds aka stephen miller and if you're joining us for the first time the spoiler warning podcast is a weekly film review program each week on the show we're going to dive into it discuss and argue over the latest films coming to a theater near you this week we already had a review of the first half of Barbenheimer Weekend. Um, our review of Barbie is in the feed, so hopefully you enjoyed that already. And now we're talking about Oppenheimer, a film that I have been incredibly excited to see. Was very sad that I was going to uh, be out of the country in the weekend that it released. I, I happened to leave the country when Dead Reckoning Part 1 and Oppenheimer all came out. And then, you know, Barbie, mm-hmm. I was going to see it also, but it, it, it didn't hit me the same way as not being able to yeah, see those you, two you films. You just hate IMAXs. You don't, you don't want to support them. You don't want them to be around anymore. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Um, but yeah, speaking of IMAXs, Stephen, let's talk a little bit about uh, how we did and potentially might later see uh, Oppenheimer if we were to go revisit it. Um, yeah, h- how did you consume this film? Yeah, well, I wish I could have seen those big blue eyes in IMAX, but I couldn't um, because, unfortunately, the IMAX in San Francisco, the Metreon, which is, as we've discussed, at least internally, one of the few real 70 millimeter capable IMAXs in the world. I believe this is the second largest in the world. It depends on how you measure but it is up there like it is a great 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 imax and i have never in my life had a problem getting one seat to an imax screening ever at the metreon and it was not only sold out in the weekend that oppenheimer came out it has been sold out unless you want to sit like in the very front in the corner which i believe is a terrible experience in an imax of that size um it will basically be sold out until at least mid-August and probably later. So there is um, the appetite for Oppenheimer is real, but it makes it impossible for us to see it in our desired format. So I saw it in 70 millimeter, but just regular old 2D at the Alamo. Um, and yeah, we'll we'll talk about what that experience was like. But I do wish this is other than Tenet, which... Obviously, we didn't go out and see it in the IMAX, given when it came out. I yeah. think I've seen pretty much every Nolan movie in IMAX ever since um, Inception. Like, it, it has been a point of pride to have that experience and get to see it in the way that he intended it to be seen. I believe, and maybe I'm mixing a couple of things up, but I believe you and I drove up to Irvine we to watch, sure like, did. one of the Harry Potters or something just to see the opening to... was. It- that was at the time it was the dark knight rises right well so yeah we definitely i was trying to piece this together too while talking about the intro we definitely drove up to irvine spectrum to see something i assume nolan related in the imax but then my memory of when i saw inception and when i saw dark knight rises both mean you could not have been the person who drove up with me uh, (laughs) because i was already living in berkeley and came down specific both of those, I actually flew into L.A. and met a friend and went and watched it. But you and I definitely made a drive up to the IMAX to see a Nolan I, thing together. I, I think it was I, I feel like it was a Harry Potter film. And I feel like they showed the opening scene where Bane takes the plane. I think they showed mm. that later on many, many years later, 
we went and saw something maybe separately where they played the intro to Tenet um, mm. before that in IMAX. Um, but yeah, mm. it, it's a thing where like I get very excited for these Nolan films and I will go see other films that I don't care to see in IMAX just for the chance to get a peek at even a trailer of a Nolan film um, in IMAX. But, you know... Uh, you know, as Steven said, um, uh, I can't get a freaking ticket to an IMAX. I think now, I, I believe I heard that they extended the, the, um, the, the window for how long that Oppenheimer is going to be playing at IMAXs. So there's a chance that people stop booking tickets and then now they're still bookable. Um, so, you know, maybe by the time we're done recording this, we can... <laughs> we can get a ticket to go friggin' see this thing again. Um, but yeah, I also saw it at the Alamo Draft House Theater 1, uh, 70 millimeter, but no IMAX. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe suboptimal uh, viewing experience, but, you know, we did what we could. Uh, so, yeah. Now, did you eat anything during this movie or did you want the pure experience, no distractions? Uh, I did eat something. Um I may have even got popcorn because, you know, I just, I needed to see, uh, you know, the chain reactions of kernels just popping individually until they create a giant bowl. Uh, uh, like, it, you know, if you think about a bowl of popcorn, it's kind of like an upside down mushroom cloud. <laughs> so, sure. so, you know, I, I think I was, yeah, I wanted to make there. a kernel joke, but all of the military people are generals in this movie. So I, I couldn't find one. <laughs> so, so close. Um, but yeah, Stephen, are you t- excited to talk about this film? Oh, I am so excited. I just have to get the joke I couldn't spit out while you were talking about The Dark Knight Rises watching Bane on the plane, which is Bruce Wayne and Bane stays mainly on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and on that note... And we, now we can review Oppenheimer. I'm going to... Uh, <laughs> I'm going to play the trailer for Oppenheimer, and then we're going to come back and give everybody a review. Imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. Until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice.
All right, so that was the trailer for Oppenheimer, um, which is the story of uh, Oppenheimer and the creation of the atomic bomb, and uh, you know some of the stuff that happened uh, after that bomb was created. <laughs> Stephen Miller, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Um, so I'm sure back when we reviewed Tenet, or maybe when we did our Inception revisit, both of these in 2020. I've talked about my theory of Nolan, which is that I think he is the king of making movies that feel like you've wrestled with something really difficult, like you've solved something complicated, like you're getting something that's incredibly hard to get while actually holding your hand and making sure that you do get it, that the whole audience is along for the ride. He's like the king of crowd-pleasing, difficult movies that never go so far to actually alienate or be hard to follow. Um, and that isn't a criticism. Like, I literally don't know anyone else on the planet who knows how to do that. Um, there are plenty of people who make self-serious movies that feel hollow or dumb. Um, a million titles come to mind. For some reason, Transcendence is the one I want to say, because that's just an example <laughs> that we reviewed. Um <laughs> There are also a lot of filmmakers that I love, uh, sometimes love more than Nolan, that can make challenging movies that feel really challenging and kind of brutal to get through. Um, you know, a lot of art house does this, but even more popular ones like Alex Garland, I think Annihilation is a good example of like, it feels confusing and it actually is confusing <laughs> and hard to follow. But I don't know anyone else who knows the Nolan formula of pushing the audience to their breaking point while still being big, appealing, crowd-pleasing. And that is like an amazing place to be with a filmmaker because he can carry you anywhere. He can he has a blank check to do whatever he wants for a large audience to tackle themes. Um, he's done it with Time, you know, Tenet, Memento. He did it with Consciousness in Inception. He's done it with History in Dunkirk. He's done it with Space in Interstellar. All these big, heady concepts that he, like, holds your hand through and pushes you up against difficulty while making sure it's still a crowd-pleaser. And in Oppenheimer, I think he uses those tools to talk about ethics and philosophy, which is a really interesting thing for a filmmaker of his caliber and scale and budget to tackle. Um I mean this as a compliment. When I watched Oppenheimer, I felt like a college student who wanted to argue about big, abstract, ethical conundrums and solve the whole world. And I felt like I had like unlocked the secret to something. Uh, what does it mean to be complicit? When do the ends justify the means? Stuff like that. And I don't actually think the ethics of the story of Oppenheimer are complicated. Like, I think that's a trick Nolan is pulling. I think the ethics are pretty easy. He built a weapon of mass destruction. We committed a war crime against thousands and thousands and thousands of civilians. He believed his own propaganda, and that happens all the time. But to live in Oppenheimer's brain, I'm sure it was very complicated, very difficult, very confusing and hard to grapple with. And I think that is the story Nolan wants to tell, is how would it feel to be this sort of genius who is so caught up in the act of creation that you are blinded to the negative effects of what you are doing until it's too late. And all that is a build like giant build up to say that I think this is a towering achievement <laughs> that Nolan has made to make an audience live for three hours in the brain of this complicated, not hero, 
but not painted fully as a villain character and just wrestle with that ethical turmoil. Like, I literally cannot think of anyone else on the planet who could pull this off at the kind of budget, getting the kind of cast that he can get, putting it in a giant IMAX screen. Um, like, it, it, it's an amazing move for him to make. And much like when we talked about Barbie, that praise does not mean I don't have criticism. I definitely have criticism of this movie. But I just want to say that, like, the fact that this exists and is drawing massive crowds and we cannot get into an IMAX weeks later to see it is fucking crazy. And even if yeah. if I think there are more complicated ethical conundrums and ways you could tackle this movie than what he chose the degree of complication that he's drawing a giant mass audience to see is really impressive and it's just not the sort of thing that happens in movies anymore so i i love that this movie exists i think it is like an incredible achievement i have notes but before i get into the notes i want to hear what you think <laughs> oh who doesn't have notes david um <clears throat> Before I get started, I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, this past weekend, I saw a movie starring Killian Murphy about a scientist who is tasked with being in control of a giant atomic bomb and has dreams about explosions and bright flashes that remind him of the sun. Um, and uh, most of the film is actually just a close up of Killian Murphy's face. And uh, the, f the film deals with the entire fate of the world. And uh, but enough about Danny Boyle's sunshine. I was see I was trying to interrupt you with a thing that would tie Ken equals Ryan Gosling equals remember the con the Titans and Sunshine but I couldn't quite get there cuz I don't think he was Sunshine I think someone else was Sunshine but anyway <laughs> continue um, I see I see what you're doing with that Yeah you see what I'm doing there boom goes the atomic bomb um but uh yeah <laughs> Now that I've gotten that out of the way, I, I love Danny Boyle's Sunshine, by the way. Um, but it is yeah. funny to see, like, once again, it's the amount of time, the amount of runtime of this three-hour film that is a close-up of Killing Murphy's face with just red light flashing in it and the yeah. intensity of thinking about explosions um, and potential death uh, just reminded me of that. Not in a bad way, just it was, it was a thing that I kept thinking of, like, dang, oh, he 100%. really is... Yeah, he's good at this. Staring <laughs> at blinding lights. And yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, I have to imagine on some level, Nolan had seen Sunshine, and that made him think, God, Killian would be perfect for this role. <laughs> like, yeah, it yeah. is a very similar similar use of him. Yeah. Though that use of the atomic bomb uh, to restart the sun is a less uh, controversial use of those type of weapons. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so I will say, um, you know, the, the thing that you talked about, about Nolan being a person who like really th likes to like drive people to think about a subject, but like you don't necessarily fully understand that you've like, you feel like you've done a lot of work to participate in that conversation. But then by the end, you might not be there. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm you're really paraphrasing what, what you were saying. Um, but <laughs> no, to me, uh, to me, to me, kind of what he is, is he's a man who, obsesses over one idea and he does it for so long that he decides to build an entire film around this one concept and sometimes that concept is a concept that expands my knowledge and understanding of an idea or my thoughts about an idea and sometimes it's just a different way of portraying you know like that being like inception or something like that with the idea of, of what dreams are um you know interstellar love it or hate it you know it's an idea of what 
connects things over space and time and blah blah um you know with dunkirk it's a different way of portraying this moment in in this war and what time meant when everybody all these different forces were moving to all try to you know get these boys off the shore or whatever um you know he 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 likes to think of something and just extrapolate it as far as, far as he can and it feels like he obsesses over something and wants to draw you in to that thing and you know he he is an incredible filmmaker right like what he is doing in this film like just just the way he portrays visually what he's doing can't can't touch right it's just it's just great like he nobody can complain about what he's doing visually maybe auditorily for a lot of people <laughs> well based on most i, of the I had no problem hearing it i i know no. people are saying that i had no problem with the audio i i didn't have any problems either but people always say this for all of his films so i just assume that it's going to be a continued complaint there's going to be a thousand youtube videos about why nolan's dialogue and oppenheimer was impossible to hear or whatever um but it's like it's, you know that's just that's a, just part of it but for me that isn't what I'm drawn to Nolan's films for, right? You know, it's like I, I appreciate it on some level. I still want to go see it in IMAX if I can get a chance to, but it's not really what I'm waiting for. You know, when when this whole Barbenheimer craze uh, was taking off, you know, there there were two forms of the jokes, right, uh, about the order in which you were going to go see Barbenheimer. Either you know, but all of them referenced the fact that this film was going to be, uh, you know, a dark uh, film that talked about you know the the weight of a soul of a person who builds something so destructive right like it, it was always about like this is going to be a heavy sit barbie is going to be a fun thing you either want barbie as the thing that brings you back up from ha like having lived through oppenheimer or you want to get barbie out of the way because you don't want oppenheimer to taint uh the fun you would have in barbie right those are the kind of the jokes you can have um so i was fucking excited for this film because like i want i want this fucking thesis on what it means to be the, the, the force this destructive and the weight that that can have on somebody who participates in that creation and all that kind of stuff i was really excited for a very heady sort of what does this mean for this man who was part of creating this thing um caveats right up front <laughs> yeah uh i i spent 20 hours 24 hours traveling <laughs> got home went to sleep, went, got up, did a full day of work, and then immediately rushed to the theater to go watch this three-hour film. We saw this movie very tired right after a play. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stephen, you said you have notes. Um, yeah. I, it pains me to say this. I have a lot of problems with this film. Um, wow. To me, to me, this film feels like I forgot to do my homework. And I got to class where everybody's doing oral reports on Oppenheimer. <laughs> and, I, and like, I don't really know what's going on. And, and to me, it feels like this film, like one of the things we complain about sometimes when there's stuff that is based on a true story or, you know, a film that is created around some sort of historical event, it often feels like the film is checking off boxes of truth in the life of a person, mm. right? Uh, this event happens, so it's in the movie. It doesn't matter whether it filmically uh, makes a lot of sense or um, is helpful to the story you're trying to tell. It's just a fact about a person, so it goes into the film. This film feels riddled with it. There is, If I compare Oppenheimer putting together the team that's going to work on the atomic bomb that's going to go move to Los Alamos, um, if I compare that to, I don't know, any heist movie, right? 
any heist movie is like, we're going to crack this safe. We need the best locksmith in the world. What's the introduction to the locksmith, right? The introduction to the locksmith is you go to an event where people are like racing against the clock to actually unlock something, or you pick up somebody who just did a different job undoing some world's best safe. It's like when you're introduced to the the thief who's going to join your crew, you are introduced to them thiefing, right? You're introduced to them doing something. Yeah. In this film, it's like, and then he got fucking Bob. <laughs> Bob joined the team. And it's like, there'll be a literal scene where he's like, what do you think about this quantum something or other? Uh, oh, that's because you're thinking about it wrong. Let me show you. Smash cut to something else. And it's like, all right, well, if you're not going to tell me why these are the brightest people in their fields... I'm just trusting you that they're the brightest. And obviously, some of them are names that are like household names. And some of them are like, I recognize the name, but I don't remember what they're famous for um, other than fucking building an atomic bomb, I guess. And it's like I'm, I'm constantly being introduced to people without without their resume being presented to me at the same time. It's just kind of like, this is the guy. You know him because he did it. And it, it feels like there's something lacking from um, the presentation uh, of everything. I'm going to have a really fucking hot take here. Uh uh, I didn't think the bomb going off was that destructive feeling. Um, there was some wow. like are, part are of you it. Sure, could, the cell phone going off next yeah, to you. Yeah, part of it could definitely be the asshole whose cell phone went off for the first, you know, twelve seconds of dead silence uh, after the bomb goes off. But there was something about it where I was like, maybe you know, maybe we'll get into it in a bit when we talk about the depiction of the other uses of the bomb. But I was like, I've seen a lot of movies where shit blows up. I've seen planet killing, you know, uh, space things that just like it, it, it didn't feel like there was a lot of work that went into people putting sunscreen all over their face and putting on blaster shields. But just seeing the explosion didn't especially because you know like we've all seen those oldie time videos of like the fake houses that are set up close to the blast radius and then like when the explosion happens like all the trees in the house just get blown the fuck away like Mm -hmm. this film isn't even depicting that kind of localized destruction right it's like the big old explosion in the middle of the desert and then 30 seconds later a rush of wind which doesn't knock anything over like it it, something about it didn't feel that big to me um Which is weird, I know. That's a stupid complaint of yeah, mine. I'm, this one I'm surprised by. <laughs> and, and, this and, is a and, note I was not expecting. <laughs> and then here's another thing that kind of really bugged me about this film. Um, you know, there's a scene uh, where they're talking about, um, you know, hey, we did the math, and there's a chance that when we set this thing off, it'll cause a chain reaction that'll ignite the atmosphere and destroy the entire planet. That is not a conversation that where people are like agonizing over whether it's worth actually setting it off. It's like, we did the math. Uh, do it one more time. Well, let me go talk to this guy. Huh? They say the math's pretty good, but like, uh Oh, and then like, even when like Matt Damon's character hears it for the first time, he's like, Oh, I sure wish it was closer to zero than near zero. But like, there's no, there's no arguments. There's no debating. You said this is a film about ethics and and Mm -hmm. stuff. There's no debating on whether it's okay to set this bomb off, right? Everybody's like, where do we set it off? We're going to do it. We know we're going to build it because the movie's called Oppenheimer and we know it eventually. There, there was some aspect of the film that felt weird. Don't even get me started on the women characters in this film. <laughs> um, so that is one of my notes. <laughs> yeah. And then the worst fucking sin of this film is where I am become death line comes from. Like, mm-hmm. I... 
when that happened, I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. This is a real movie I'm watching right now. This is Christopher Nolan's big take on the origin of I Am Become Death, Destroyer of Worlds. Like, I was like, this is this is like worse than Han Solo's name being depicted because he was alone wow. when he was checking into customs. Um, wow. Love and hate are just so close together you, you i never yeah. i never would have predicted this level of hot take i i agree i fin- finish your takes and then yeah. i'll what well, i have, I'll I have on. one one last hot take i i said at the beginning of this that i came into this film wanting to feel the weight of what this man did and his creation and his potential regret over it honestly i feel the the music and these flashbacks that are inserted the entire three-hour runline run, runtime. If you took those out, I don't even think I wouldn't even see this this portrayal of Oppenheimer as somebody who regrets anything. Like I feel like there's a lot of this impending doom that is artificially created, artificially being created by him pre-imagining chain reactions, as though he is tormented before he ever starts working on the project to build something that'll have such a destructive force to it. And I think that like the film. I, I didn't like the heavy handedness of of that sort of like, oh, I'm having the headaches again and thinking about the the sound and explosions and, and like it felt it felt kind of cheap in a way to me. Like visually, it's interesting. I like the visual metaphor for it. But for some reason, I was lacking in I didn't feel this film was actually dealing with anything heavy. It was too visually portraying everything. Um, and I don't know how to deal with that. Interesting. Wow. So many places to go. I never thought this review would be me defending Oppenheimer to Christopher. <laughs> I thought I was going to be the one with the nitpicks and you were going to tell me why the nitpicks didn't matter. I mean, so first I'm going to agree with you on one nitpick and then I'm going to bring up my own nitpick and then I'm going to start defending a lot of, <laughs> of this movie. Um, one nitpick I wholeheartedly agree with it. it was one of my very first feelings when I leaved, left the the screening. Um, Nolan has never known how to write a female character who's interesting for any reason other than being in need of saving or troubled or unpredictable in some way. I don't have a single counterexample. Maybe one exists. I guess Interstellar, actually. In Interstellar, it's because she's a daughter, and that's a little bit different. Um, <laughs> but for the most part... His characters, you know, you go back to Inception. It's about the dead wife, about being haunted by someone, about this person who's like on the brink, who can't keep things together and you wish you could keep her, but you can't. Um, This movie commits that sin not once, but twice with Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt, who do their damnedest within their roles to find something meaningful about it. I think they play them well, given the circumstances, but... It just doesn't feel like Nolan knows how to give a woman anything that isn't, here's how you are a catalyst. Your pain is a catalyst for the man in your life to go off and do great things. Um, Oh, but but Steven, she gets to tell a bunch of people in a hearing how smart she is. Yeah, so I know you're being sarcastic. I actually like that moment quite a bit, but it it I isn't. I didn't not enough. like it, but I'm I'm just joking that like oh, but see how strong this <laughs> character was in yeah. that moment. My two feelings about this are one, I think it is a blind spot Nolan has 
But two, I don't know that I would want him to try to course correct because I don't think he would know how to write a woman. <laughs> and I don't really want to see him try to do it. So unless he moves into a world where he starts having co-writers, I think you just know when you're watching a Nolan movie, you are getting a dudes, 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 and all dudes <laughs> movie because it, it, clearly yeah. this is just a thing that he is not in his wheelhouse um, and he does not do. So that completely by. One you didn't say that I will say is another thing Nolan always does. It's like the um, the lane following feature in a car where it like forces you to go in a certain direction. He always wants there to be a prestige, a reveal, a big twist that makes you rethink everything that happened. He tries to shoehorn that in here in a moment. First of all, the whole movie is not the kind of movie that needs or should have a big reveal like that. And also the moment he tries to do it involving Robert Downey Jr.'s character, I just could not care less about that reveal in that moment. And it, the movie doesn't need it to play like a reveal. It's just like he couldn't help himself but like have this grand moment that he wanted to show. And that I rolled my eyes at. That to me was like Nolan's going to Nolan. He's trying to do this thing, even though it makes no goddamn sense of this movie to try to have this beat here. Um, yeah. And those are my two real criticisms of, of the movie are his insistence on having a reveal and his inability to write female characters. Um, otherwise, a lot of the things that you are criticizing are what I like about the movie, <laughs> I think. <laughs> like you... You basically were saying that the it is visually saying almost everything. And that, to me, is what is impressive about this movie. Because Nolan's biggest irritant for me is he is the over-explainer, the exposition dump, the guy who's like, let's use our words to say all the things, and then aren't you going to feel so smart and cool? And here, he he doesn't have people too often have grand ethical arguments. He does. You know, you mentioned there's no grand ethical argument before um, the test happens. But after the test happens and before the bomb is actually taken by the military and dropped, there are ethical arguments. You know, multiple characters in this movie are talking to Oppenheimer and he has put on blinders, basically. And this movie, I think, is visually about the blinders you put on, the kind of single-minded focus. He can't help himself. He has to think about these chaotic aspects of the universe, and he gets so absorbed into them, he can't contain it. He he doesn't know how to contain all this stuff that he's working with. It overwhelms his whole life. It uh, drives him to work, 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 work toward a goal that he cannot explain, and the moment it happens, he feels completely lost and terrified, and he doesn't know how to articulate to anyone why he did it, because it doesn't make any sense. It's chaos. It's quantum theory. You know, his brain is following the logic of quantum particles, where it's all just energy and floating around, and now he has committed this grave sin, and he doesn't know how to talk about it. Like, I think the movie does an amazing job in the filmmaking of showing you that. And and I thought this was tonally one of the most consistent movies Nolan has ever made. And it was really, really impressive to me to see how he carries that over a three-hour movie. Um, I loved the scenes when he's in the auditorium giving a speech after the bomb has been dropped on Hiroshima. 
and the audio is cutting in and out and his terror at the bomb is overwhelming which, this which, which we still don't know whether or not that was our transfer of the film or the actual no film. it's definitely the it definitely a filmmaking choice <laughs> um <laughs> but yeah like I, I think that whole moment is breathtaking i i think that is incredibly well executed and says way more than words would say about that kind of hollow feeling and how the fact that people are cheering disgusts you and you disgust yourself and you're i thought all of that was really beautiful and incredibly well done um I, I, so I, even though there isn't that much like verbal argument about the ethics i feel like the movie is steering you toward the ethics in such an overwhelming way it felt like those kind of like grad school debates that i like nolan for putting me in and I will give you that scene does do exactly what you're saying. And I do appreciate that scene. Like, it's not like I didn't, I didn't hate the whole film. Um, I, I, I know I'm, I'm having fun giving my hot takes on this podcast. Um, just because yeah. like, I feel like these are the hottest takes. <laughs> this is real. This is thermonuclear takes. <laughs> Get Benny Safty in here. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of Benny Safty, there's a good example of, there's that scene in the movie where like, they're all around the chalkboard and they're like, they're like, oh, we'll do, uh, you know, uh, you know, the fusion bomb or whatever, whatever. I forget which which one is which, but like, they're basically like, yeah, we'll put a bunch of bombs out here, and then they'll blow outward, and they'll cause a train reaction. And then Benny Safdie is like, wait, what if we blow them inward? And everybody goes, ah, bigger bomb. <laughs> and then everybody mm. switches to that, and it's like, is that? Did did everybody just? say exactly what they would have thought of if they had a big meeting about it it would be like man that's a really efficient team where you just walk up and go this thing no this thing done with meeting you know what i mean like it just there was something that felt so not real to me it's kind of like you know I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna pull back the curtain and reveal some sausage making there was one time where we started an episode and we got 30 minutes and then i realized that nothing had been saved like something crashed and we lost it and we just fucking did all our banter again as though it was in real time. And there was a level of artifice to it for sure. But like we enjoyed the conversation. So we just tried to organically have the same conversation again. This film feels like all of these real life people like reenacting their own, but they're doing like the mumblecore version where <laughs> there's no script. You think Nathan Fielder <laughs> got to all of them individually? <laughs> it just, it, it feels there's something about it that makes me just not, not believe it and it's like i i every scene i go i know this probably happened it's there's a page in this fucking thousand page uh you know biography that says this event occurred and this conversation took place but i don't feel this conversation taking place emotionally i just understand Man. it logically that is so interesting because i i don't disagree that this is more logic than emotion but i think that is nolan and like i yeah i don't think this is total realism in filmmaking i think this is grand um auteur whatever nolan does i think he is doing it here but to me that feeling that it isn't realistic didn't at all feel like the biopic wikipedia checking off the boxes to me it's it's gonna be a weird comparison but to me this is the very good version of what something like blonde tried to do where it's like i'm going to just completely immerse you 
in the headspace of this director who is trying to say something about this one complicated character and it's going to be claustrophobic and overwhelming and larger than life and it is not going to be realistic at all for blonde i hated that movie didn't work at all for oppenheimer that grand theatricality of it worked so well on me like i i thought all of that worked very very well and in fact when the movie didn't work for me is when you get situations where people are being more realistic, like the kind of uh, Senate courtroom drama in the last third of this movie. Like, I was okay with it structurally. I know why it's there. It it is all interesting. (laughs) Like Barbie, I think this is not a movie that wants to have a message. It wants to be about the wrestling, you know, and provoking the wrestling in the audience. So I know why all that is there. I think it fits. But like, when characters are acting more natural, I felt a little off put because this was such a like grand movie. And I don't know how to match that up with people trying to be real humans. Um, So like, I totally agree on the lack of realism, but for me, that is like the whole Nolan thing. I don't think Nolan makes real characters like in anything as far as I can tell. Yeah. I'll give one more example of like the way the, like the facts playing in uh, rub me like a weird way like there, there's a scene in the film where um, they get the newspaper that like the Russian scientists or something have split the atom or wh- whatever it was uh, that was happening and like you get 30 seconds of him doing the math on the board and he's like see I did the math it can't possibly happen and then his buddy runs and he's like well it's funny because your buddy just did it in the other room over there and they're like oh my god and he's like we're not in the realm of theory anymore and it's just like like it felt like you know when you watch you know this Nolan's done some time travel stuff you know like you know we, we, we sometimes celebrate when a time travel movie like waves away the ta- time travel logic where like you know yeah, when it lampshades it a little yeah, bit like, it's like Bruce yeah, Willis in, in uh, Looper saying like eh, I could get out straws and we could do a diagram but fuck it, it doesn't it's not really important I feel like you get to do that one time in your film and it's funny and cute and clever but like the amount like if I if I did a search right now for all the dialogue in, in the script and I said how many times did you say it's not theory anymore or outside of the realm of theory I feel like it would be a lot of times like it feels like every mm-hmm. scene ends with was well, like well that theory can only take you so far and it's like, no, I want you to take me so far. Tell me why this is exciting. Like, if you look at something like uh, Imitation Game, right? I understand why they're trying to build the machine. <laughs> I understand why he's obsessing, uh, uh, like, you know, why Turing is obsessing with, like, this, anything that he's interested in this. In an Oppenheimer's case, it's like he he just wants to be the person who did it first. And I get that there is a... Like, at some point, it crosses over from being purely scientific to, like, this will help us win to the war. But, like, for him, it just seems like he That's wants to be... That's his self-justification later. I, I, don't, I don't buy that as his reasoning. That's more like he's picked up momentum and this is how he justifies it as he's cloaking himself in all the arguments that Matt Damon or someone would throw at him. Yeah, like, to me, it feels a little bit like he wants to be the guy who commented first on Reddit, you know? <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't know. Do people still do that nowadays? Is that like a very early 2000s thing? Um, uh, they definitely do it on the Chapo Trap House Patreon. It's super annoying. Okay. It, just, it feels a little bit like that, though, right? Like he was putting together a dream team to just win the race to build an atomic bomb. And it, like, I don't feel until it's used that he has 
any reservations at all about what he's doing. He's just kind of like, yeah, well, of course I'm going to do it because somebody's going to do it. It might as well be me and my team. Um, and I, he doesn't really, it feels like he doesn't do much. He puts together the team and then he like takes all the credit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as, as a PM, I think you should uh, <laughs> give the guy a little more credit. Um, so he, so here's the thing. I I hear you. And so I know you know the themes of the movie because like you said, they say it a million times. Yeah. Theory versus practice. The difference between the idea in your head and actually seeing it out in the world. And, you know, characters say it all the time. Um, you know, Josh Hartnett is constantly saying it. Josh Hartnett is Mr. Practice and um, Killian Murphy is all theory. Um that is this movie's take on the ethical mystery of Oppenheimer, right? Is he lived only in theory. He was stuck in his brain. He was just interested in, can this work? Is it possible? He raced toward it. You think theory is completely harmless. You know, you tell yourself lies. Like, if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. This is just math. This isn't me doing a grave evil. You know, it, it's the same lie that Truman tries to tell him later, you know, like, you're just the scientist, you're just doing this thing. And then the moment it becomes real, all these things that you didn't think were possible, these feelings you didn't think you were have gonna have, suddenly happen. And like, he builds this fake world in his brain, where when we set off the bomb, it is going to be such a horrifying moment of destruction. Even the test, you know, maybe we won't even actually have to use it. It's going to be so horrifying. It will end all war forever. And that is the most assume a spherical cow scientist just imagining an ideal world bullshit you can imagine, right? Um, but that is at least Nolan's take on the tragedy of Oppenheimer is that he's like, he can't make a rational choice about the world until he sees a thing happen like it, it's the it's the apple right the poisoning of the apple so fucking weird you know it, it, i believe it's also in the book um why why would you put that in like why would he ever do that what is he hoping to accomplish is he trying to murder the professor i think he likes the professor like what is he doing and it nolan's just trying to say he is so obsessed with like he gets stuck in his head and has these ideas and then when they collide with the real world it can be terrifying and he tries to course correct and sometimes he's too late so like I, I don't know to me that is the movie and like the fact that assembling the team feels hurried and the motivations are unclear to me is like what Nolan is trying to say it's his closest thing to a take on Oppenheimer it's just the the momentum of doing and doing and doing and wanting to prove something. And then suddenly the real world invades and you are completely fucked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I know, I know, you know, that that's what he's trying to say to you. I just feel like you are frustrated by it. And to me, it is him tackling an impossible task, which is how do I get in the head of a person who is unknowable and committed grave crimes against humanity, but was also brilliant. What could have possibly driven him? And no. I think this is that mystery box for him is like, I don't know what drives him just like Greta Gerwig doesn't know how Barbie should be. All I know is the contradiction of it. And let me like make you feel that contradiction as hard as I can. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, it didn't all, it didn't all 
fail for me. I I enjoyed the film enough. It's still a big spectacle. I'm still going to give it a must-see by the end of this review. Oh, wow. It, that is actually surprising to me. <laughs> it's just like I, I'm more disappointed than anything, right? It's not that I mm. dislike the film. It's that I was prepared to be quite literally blown away. And instead, you know, the film didn't go out with a bang. It went out with a whisper or whatever. Whimper, whisper, whatever the quote is. Um, yeah. I'm just mixing Whimper. all my metaphors. Um, but like, uh, it's like, did you ever hear the the episode of Radiolab about the guy who invented chlorine gas? Um, he was basically trying to figure out a way to feed the entire world and end uh, world hunger and then created this like, you know, it, it's not an atomic bomb, but like it basically just when you released it across like a bunch of trenches during a war, it just like violently killed all life in the path and stuff like that. And it's like the, I believe spoilers in the end, he killed himself. I don't remember, <laughs> but it's like one of those things where like, when you hear that story, you're like, shit, that guy dealt with a lot after his attempted way of making the world better resulted in, um, you know, making the world a much worse place for a large amount of people. Um, and like that story is incredibly compelling and i feel like this film is a little bit uh stuck in the like was he or was he not a communist and i know that's not necessarily what the film's dealing with it's the people around oppenheimer long after the bomb was created that are using that as a way to discredit him for not being super stoked about blowing a bunch of stuff up so it's kind of like a weird thing where it's like the film isn't really guilty of taking up too much of the runtime. It's actually the people in the real life who are guilty of that. And I, to me, those two things are the same thing in filmic language. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like, like just let me spend more time inside of his head as opposed to the people around him arguing about whether or not he gave money to France for the revolution or <laughs> whatever mm. the hell is going on Spain. in that one conversation. Spain. Yeah. Yeah. The Spanish, uh, the fighting Franco. Um, but, like, to me, again, all of that fits. And may maybe partly it's just that I went to Berkeley. I was just a sucker for all the stuff that took place in Berkeley and was in that kind of, like, I guess it was before Berkeley was a counterculture place, but this was, like, a pre-counterculture, like, the late 30s or something. Um, the way that he dabbles in those as, like, a theoretical thing where he, like, theoretically agrees with Marx on a lot of stuff but he doesn't want to actually commit to that group because he doesn't want to put it into practice. He doesn't want all like the messiness of the real world. Like I think, I think it all fits together in this very interesting picture of him. So I, I, I liked it. I was fine with it. And I was just, I like seeing UC Berkeley on, <laughs> on camera. Uh, one fun story. Um, so the guy that Benny Safdie plays, uh, Edward Teller, who would go on to be like the father of the hydrogen bomb, you know, that arguably became even more death, the destroyer of more worlds, though it, that has not been used. So, you know, time will time will tell. Um, so I there was a fellowship I got for grad school that has like a kind of famously scary interview process. This is like a national thing. It's the private company, but it's kind of government-ish affiliated um and the interview process is like multiple rounds of interviews where the interviewer makes you feel like absolute dog shit like the dumbest person in the whole world and you leave the interview crying and thinking you're never gonna get any kind of play position anywhere and you should just like leave academia and then 
eventually, even if you get it, you feel that way. Uh, Edward Teller started that interview process. He was like the inaugurable, the inaugural person. And the person who interviewed me was his protege. And he was like the scariest dude I've ever met in my life. <laughs> um, so anyway, the Benny Safdie character is, uh, and all of these like Alamo people, um, they're, they're tough, scary, very opinionated dudes who, um, yeah, there was just kind of like a force of certainty of whatever they believed, whatever havoc it caused. But uh, I don't know. It was interesting to me seeing it on screen because a lot of those names were people that like buildings are named after around Berkeley or scientists we'd studied or equations that were named after them or people I met studied under those people. And it's just a I don't know. It was it was an interesting way for it to collide with my life. Um before I talk about the ethical ramifications of the movie, which is probably my last real subject, I do want to just mention the cast that is so stacked. Oh, um, yeah. Like, more than a Wes Anderson movie. Like, the, <laughs> I didn't know Nolan had this level of pull. Like, there's the stars, you know, Killian, I mentioned Emily Blunt, uh, and Florence Pugh already, Matt Damon. I really like Matt Damon in this movie. I think he, like, plays off Killian Murphy's seriousness so well and is like one of the few bits of levity. Um, I love seeing Robert Downey Jr. play like a human being as opposed to just Tony Stark. Yeah, like yeah. It, it was really cool. I think he's super great in this movie, even if the the prestige around him I don't think works, but I think his character is fucking awesome. The, the, he still had a little bit of the Tony Stark mannerisms towards the end of the film when he right before the shoe is about to drop. Like I feel like yeah. some of his like Hmm? he said what what like he had like very much that it was like that was suddenly starting to break through but yeah i loved his performance in general in the film yeah uh josh hartnett i don't remember the last time i saw that dude but uh he he still got it still a heartthrob um, <laughs> matthew modine uh kenneth branagh gary oldman there were all the like players too that aren't like the biggest names, but I love to see like Krumholtz. I, I want to see him in everything. He's like kind of the beating heart of this movie. <laughs> Honestly, he's the closest thing the movie has to like a moral conscience. Um, yeah. Cast was stacked. To me, all the recognizable faces did not distract at all. They just made it a even better experience. Yeah. In a way, it sort of lends weight to all these people. If you're not super familiar with all the different scientists, like it's like throwing yeah. all these people. It's like, all right, now I'm on board. I, they're, they're the these actors of that industry. <laughs> and it's a it's a good shorthand for like, how do you remember all these characters? You need the most memorable faces on Earth to tell them apart, basically. And that's what that's what he uses them for. Yeah, I, I'm definitely guilty of that with this film where it's like, I'm just remembering the people. But that's probably where part of my problem is like, who the fuck is this guy? What does he do? I'm like, I know the actor. I'm just following him. Mm -hmm. I know this guy as like his sort of like, you know, secondhand man in a way who's always trying to steer him in the right direction. And like, I know Matt yeah. Damon's the general dude. And like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just, it feels like, uh, you know, going back to you know, being young and like Bible study and stuff like that, where it's like you get to sections and they just spit out a bunch of names. And I'm like, I don't give a crap about any of those names. I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to remember them. I'm just remembering who was doing what in the story. And I will never remember what the name was of that person. I'm just getting the idea of what the story was supposed to communicate. <laughs> yep. 
I think that's fine. I, I don't think you need to remember all like I, I think I remember a lot of the names. But again, I had like an equation to remember each of them by or something. So I was like, oh, that's where the Chevalier principle. Oh, that's funny. You know, that's interesting. <laughs> um, Is that your version so, of an Easter egg? <laughs> yeah, I, it, it kind of is. This is my like Marvel post credit scene or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I will say like, so the ethics, not the ethics of the atomic bomb, which I think at least for me are not that complicated. Like it kind of blows my mind that even today, a lot of responses to Oppenheimer, at least like people replying to critics or whatever, will say like, ah, but if you think about it, if they hadn't dropped the atomic bomb, the war would have continued and more lives would have been lost. And like, to me, that's like propaganda. And it's just the dumbest shit in the world. Like we, you know, we murdered tens of thousands of innocent people. Like there's no way to make that into a good decision. And that one of the best parts of the movie to me is when they are actually deliberating on where to drop it and you get just some of those chilling moments of how carelessly they made this decision you know like where will they drop it where won't they drop it is based on where the guy spent his honeymoon and just like a few people making a quick decision by committee um that is all really well done and i don't think the ethics are complicated at all um an ethical conversation about the movie that I think is complicated, which I think you hinted at before, is should it have actually depicted the devastation this wreaked on the Japanese people? And should it have centered Japanese characters more? And I don't have a good answer to that, except I think Nolan chose to tell a story that was like, damned if he did, damned if he didn't. I think if he had shown the actual bombing of Hiroshima, it would have been cheap and manipulative, and I would have had a million problems with his tendency toward, like, spectacle and how that would seem, like, terrible to do. And then not showing it also feels one-sided or emitting. So I I don't have an answer on it, but I've been wrestling with it. And I think it's just, like the assignment he set for himself was impossible to do in a way that doesn't have a problem. Yeah. Like the, the ironic thing for me is even if I avoid the like ethical ramifications of it, like I already complained about the bomb didn't seem like I didn't get the ramifications of the existence of the bomb purely by the way it was portrayed in their test. So like filmically it, it would have been better to show it based on my complaint, but I still don't know if it would have been handled properly uh, in a way that didn't also cause a lot of uh, problems. So, yeah, yeah, I, it's kind of like the writing of women. Like, I just don't think Nolan could have done it in a way that would have been good. So I'm glad he didn't. But I completely agree with any criticism if people feel it's a problem. You know, it. Um... Yeah, on the other extreme, if you want, like, an artsy movie to watch, uh, Hiroshima Mon Amour from, like, the late 50s is a love story set in Hiroshima, but it opens with, like, a 10-minute voiceover that includes documentary footage and stuff of the destruction, and that's, like, incredibly jarring and in service to a movie that is not about violence, and it's, um, I don't know, basically that's been done before already. I'm glad Mm -hmm. Nolan didn't try it, but... I don't know. It does. 
like he goes above and beyond to not show it. Like he barely even shows the blast in the test site. Like it's all about Oppenheimer watching things, watching a slideshow of the devastation, watching the blast go off. Yeah. Cool. Well, we made it to one third the runtime of the film. Uh, any last thoughts you have before we wrap this up? Um, last little nitpick. I'm sure other people have mentioned it. There's a moment when Oppenheimer has been like a, a whatever company man, and then Krumholtz convinces him to like just be Oppenheimer, and he goes and gets his hat and cape or whatever and it's like the most batman-esque thing <laughs> this yeah, movie yeah. does and i think i don't think nolan thinks he's a hero i don't think he wants to extol the virtue of oppenheimer i kind of think those takes are ridiculous given so much of what the movie is about but that is like one of those little things where he just like couldn't resist having a moment that makes it seem like oh hell yeah oppenheimer's gonna oppenheim and just didn't fit with the movie <laughs> Uh, yeah, he is sort of donning the suit. (laughs) (laughs) The little Oppenheimer symbol goes up into the clouds. Exactly. All right. Well, Stephen, I think it's about time to get to verdicts. (laughs) If you're going to give us a must-see, record with a caveat, wait for until past the caveat, or must-avoid, what would you give it? Must-see. I I have plenty of problems with the movie, just in general. I have some problems with Nolan, I love him, but I also see his blind spots. But it's like a massive achievement, and who else could bring this kind of audience to see this kind of movie? I think it's just, it's pretty incredible and definitely worth seeing. Yeah. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't know that other people are gonna have <laughs> the same complaints and hot takes that I had about this film. Um, so it's like for other people, it's like a must see. For me, it's like a recommend with the caveat. Um. But I already said it earlier in the episode, so I have to give it a must-see. Um, so I'm going to give it a must-see. So that, that, is, that is it. Theory versus practice, dude. You're allowed to change your mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's no ramifications for dropping this bomb. Um, <laughs> um, anyways, Stephen Miller, it's time to wrap this episode up. If people want to find you that's a week, where can they do that? Uh, people can find me at sdavidmiller.com or at sdavidmiller on every social network you can think of. <laughs> people people can find me at christopherreallife.com or toots at christopherreallife.social. <laughs> you cannot find me tooting, by the way. That's a bridge too far. <laughs> oh, man. The funniest thing is like... It seemed... I just wanted... I just wanted my own... I just wanted my own domain. Um... And it, it completely breaks Federation. <laughs> the amount of work you have to do to follow people to actually make anything come into your timeline is such a pain in the ass. Um, I, I was bored when people talked about Federations in the Star Wars prequels, and I'm bored now. <laughs> uh, nice. Um, but people can find the podcast over at thespoilerwarning.com where they can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. And if you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, Apple Podcasts, <laughs> Spotify, Spotify, uh, YouTube, um, the podcatcher of your choice. SoundCloud? No, we're not on SoundCloud. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, Anchor. Anchor is one of them, which is a Spotify, so it doesn't matter anymore. Don't need to... No, Sapporo's shutting Anchor down. That's right. Sad times. <laughs> 
But uh, when, if you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at, at uh, that one social network, twitter.com slash. Did they actually change the URL? Can you get to it in the web? No, x.com just redirects now, but twitter.com is still... And their rebrand has been so half-assed. The word Twitter and tweet are still all over the app. Yeah. Uh, Twixter. Um, but uh, twitter.com slash spoiler warning, facebook.com slash the spoiler warning, or instagram.com slash the spoiler warning. If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at the spoiler or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from a track selected from artlist.io, so hopefully you're enjoying that. Um, that music is playing now, it's going to play us out. And uh, whew, it's been a long day, long evening, Stephen, but we made it through bunch of things are going to be coming or will have been coming to the feeds for a while and then we're gonna rejoin next week with uh, some ninja turtles or something <laughs> hell yeah cowabunga <laughs> right that's ninja turtles right yeah totally all right bye everyone bye